For those of you who are not coming regularly or haven't been to us before, we are in a series called Better Together. And this is really the basic premise of, of the whole series is that you and I were never meant to live in isolation. We were always meant to be in community, to know people and be known. That's true of the whole human race. And it is very true of a believer that we're never called to work out our Christianity individually, although it is private, so personal, it's never just private, in other words. And we're always being called to work it out together, and that God has called us to grow together in the context of community. And I want to speak on worship, in the, if you like, on the platform of that idea. Now, worship is obviously something, if, you, if you've been a Christian for a while, or maybe you, you know, you're not yet, worship is, in its broadest sense, is a lifestyle. It talks about in Romans that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And that's like the broadest definition of worship, that it is a lifestyle that God is looking for. But I want to talk, if you like, today, particularly on the expression of worship when we come together. Okay, so I'm going to talk particularly about the corporate moment where we gather in a room like this, or maybe we gather in a group. Now, how many of you in the room have a job where you've been given a job description? Okay, you've applied? Okay. Now, most of us. So I am in one of the jobs I do sometimes at King's is I help write job descriptions for other members of the team. And you have to specify what their role is, why they're here, why have we employed you, what is your job, what do we need uniquely to do. If you were to write a job description for a Christian, there would be two main things written on the JD. Number one, and Jesus says this to a teacher in the Gospels, he says, first of all, on top of your JD, it says, is to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Second is to love the people he loves. In other words, express that love for God by loving people around you. That is the definition of spiritual maturity. In other words, right at the top of everybody's job description as a believer is the call to worship. In other words, purpose and worship are absolutely kind of like sewn together. One of the biggest questions in life you can ever have is, why am I here? In other words, why do I exist? Why was I made? Why was I born? And people throughout their life in the world will grapple with this question, why am I here? We ask the question Because none of us can deal with the answer that we are some kind of cosmic accident. That is not a good enough answer for any of us. That's why we keep asking the question. And the Bible is really clear that you were made for God by him as an expression of his goodness. And the top reason you exist, the purpose, is to worship him, give your life to him, and bring glory to him, and point attention towards his goodness. Now, to worship someone is basically to orientate your life around them, to say that I'm going to center my life around you. I'm going to sacrifice to you. I'm going to make choices according to you. I'm going to basically make you the center of my world. And what you discover, if you think about worship at all, or you've ever read about this, is you discover that the instinct to worship is completely natural to everybody. It's not something you have to learn to do. Everyone does it intuitively without any kind of like teaching. It's a bit like, you know, if you have babies, basically they are hardwired to want to eat and drink and sleep. They, it's just a need. And the, the, the call to worship on us is actually a need. It's an instinctive thing that we do naturally. We are hardwired, hardwired to worship. In other words, subconsciously, somewhere inside us, we all recognize that our lives only make sense if we orbit them around something or someone else. All of us, in other words, will worship someone or something. 
All of us instinctively know somewhere inside us that life only makes sense if we live for a cause beyond ourselves. That we center ourselves around someone else. So worship, in one sense, is not really a choice. We all do it instinctively. We will all worship something or someone. Everybody does. Believers and unbelievers and atheists and agnostics, everybody worships something or someone. In some sense, worship is not a choice. But there is a choice. The choice is not whether I worship. It's who I will worship is the choice. Because if I don't make God the person I worship, I will automatically worship something else or someone else. And that's what the world does. We live in a world that does that. We live in a world which will worship all sorts of other things because everybody knows somewhere inside them that there has to be something else beyond themselves. So that's what the world does. We will run after the world, will sacrifice to all sorts of things and bow down to all sorts of things. And even the believer, even the Christian, knows the pull and the drag to live to do that. We start off, if you become a Christian, you start off by acknowledging Jesus as Lord and putting him first. And in a sense, he's the center. But over time, very easily, you can feel the drag to want to actually begin to bow down to other things as well. I'm going to sacrifice to this as well. I'm going to pursue this as well. I'm going to give my money and my time and my attention over here. And very easily, you find something else can easily take Jesus' place in your life. We can fill the pool. Anybody recognize that in their own lives? Jeremiah, it says this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. In other words, he was first, he did satisfy me, and now I've started to dig around looking for other things to satisfy me. I'm beginning to put other things first, and what I find is they're broken and they don't satisfy. We all know the pull, and because we all know the pull away is one of the reasons why it's so important to come together. One of the reasons why it's so important to gather together is we're all, we all sense the drag away from God all the time. We all know what Jeremiah is talking about. We know the sense of, there's almost a kind of gravitational drag away. We are hardwired to worship someone somewhere, and if we don't worship him, we instinctively start worshiping something else. We start digging our own cisterns, our own, we look for water somewhere else. John Ortberg, in a brilliant book, says, which is called Everyone is Normal Until You Get to Know Them, says community tethers you to what you value most. In other words, it holds you. That's why Christian community is so important. Hebrews 10 puts it like this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, the ability to hold on to Jesus is totally connected with meeting together. How do we hold on? How do we spur one another? How do we encourage one another? We meet together. Because it tethers us, it holds us to who and what we value most. That is why coming together is so important in worship moments like today and in your groups. So I want to talk about three things that we should do when we gather to worship. Now there are lots of things, this is not all of it, okay? But I want to talk about three 
things which, if you like, have to be expressed corporately, publicly, together. The first one is probably, I guess, a slightly unusual point. You might think, I'm surprised he's going to talk on this, but I am, because this is absolutely key to something we do publicly. When we gather together, one of the things we should do as believers, if we've never done this, is we should be baptized. That's the first one. I'm going to talk about three of them. Here's the first one. You should be baptized. At the very heart of being a Christian, there are two acknowledgements. One is, I recognize Jesus who you are, and I recognize my need of who you are, and then, actually, because of that, I'm going to say to you, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I know who you are, Jesus, your Lord. I recognize that I need a Lord to save me, number two, and therefore I'm going to follow you. And so Jesus calls his disciples and he says, follow me. And they say, we're following. And they leave things to follow him. Now, the first step Jesus calls his believers to do, once they have said, I'll follow you, is this. So therefore, be baptized. Because baptism is the public identification that I am a follower. It's saying something that's happened personally, privately inside your heart, publicly to everybody else. I am associating myself with him by being baptized. It's a public step of what has happened privately. And if you read the New Testament, it's funny, in our kind of like era of Christianity, we have a funny relationship to baptism because it becomes a sort of almost optional thing. But in the New Testament, there is nothing optional about baptism. The only, the only person referenced in the New Testament who was a believer who didn't get baptized was the thief next to Jesus at crucifixion. And here's the only one. Now, I don't think you have to... I don't think baptism saves you, by the way. I think you can be a Christian, be saved, be born again, and not be baptized. I believe Because I think it's faith in Jesus and profession of that faith which makes you a Christian. But the New Testament doesn't teach that you become a Christian and then you think, should I get baptized? It just is assumed that you do. The very first preach in the New Testament, in Acts, there's two messages. Repent, turn away and turn towards, and then be baptized. It's simple. Two things. Now, I know there's all sorts of reasons why some of us don't get baptized. Some of us, it's our church history. We were taught something else when we were kids. We've been christened. That was my background, by the way, so I know exactly what that is like. I know exactly what it felt like to feel disloyal and feeling like grappling with being baptized and but I got to the point where I felt, God, I know it's here and I need to do it. For some of us, we've not been baptized and we've been in the church for about 170 years and we're embarrassed what everyone's going to think. I understand that. But he's Lord. He's either Lord or he's not. Okay? And let me say something fairly challenging to you. We say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm going to put you first. And then the first thing he says to you is, okay, be baptized. You go, no. Baptism is a key step on the believer's journey that we do together in the gathered moment or in a, in a smaller moment, but it's together, it's public. It's a key step and it's a critical sign. It's a symbol, it's symbolic of something. Let me just tell you quickly what it's symbolic of. When you get married, if you get married, you make a promise, you make a covenant promise, and as part of the promise, you exchange rings. This is a sign of the promise. Okay? If you read the Old Testament, there are times where God makes a promise and there's a sign that follows the promise. So Noah, God makes a sign. He, says, he makes a promise to Noah, I'm not going to flood the earth. He says there's a sign. What's the sign? It's going to be a rainbow. Okay? Promise, 
and sign. Okay? He says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a promise. Abraham is thinking, brilliant, Noah got a rainbow. I'm going to get stars or a meteor shower. And then God says to Abraham, no, it's going to be a different kind of sign, Abraham. Some of you are thinking, what sign is it? This is the sign of circumcision. Now, if you're thinking, man, Noah got a rainbow and I get... If you don't know what that is, you can ask the person sitting next to you later on. But let's say it's not as good as a rainbow. And all the men in there are thinking, thank goodness we're under the new covenant. It's a sign. that's saying that actually it was a sign of saying, I'm bringing you out of those people and I'm making a new people. It's a cutting away and a bringing in. Baptism is the sign to do a promise. That Jesus has done things and he's going to do things in your life. And it is the sign which accompanies the promise. What is it a sign of? Okay, let me tell you quickly what it's a sign of. First of all, it's a sign of this. When you baptize people, it's symbolic. It's pointing towards the fact we've been cleansed. Before you were a Christian, you're basically addicted to sin. You're under the power of sin. There's nothing you can do about it. You will do things. We, we have a, a dog who's about three and a half years old, and she's gradually getting a bit better at this, but, but she's a bit loopy, and basically she loves to run around the park, get really hot, and then she lies in the muddiest pool she can. Okay? So she comes out half, like, covered in mud. Okay? And all the people in the park laugh at her as she goes past. She's almost like half pig, basically. She's, so she will find the muddiest pool she can, and she'll lie down in it. That's what we're like. We find the muddiest things we can lie down, and we lie down in it. We find the things that we, we search for all sorts of things to give us satisfaction when we lie down and we get just covered in our own sin, basically. And baptism is symbolic of the fact that we've been cleansed. That's why we fully immerse people in water, because it says we are cleansed. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, and that is what some of you were. You were like the dog that finds the muddiest pool but you were washed. We just put that up. And you were justified and sanctified. So it symbolizes cleaning. It also symbolizes death. It points towards Jesus' death. In other words, I only get forgiven of my dirtiness because he takes the penalty for my sin. But also, the Bible says, we have been baptized into his death. Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, and were baptized into his death. In other words, when you become a believer, it's not only you're forgiven, something in you dies. And you're connected to Jesus in that way. Your old self, this old addiction, dies. In other words, not only am I forgiven for the penalty of my sin, but I am the power of sin over me. The addictiveness of sin is broken. Okay? And I've been baptized into it. Something has died. So we put people under the water, then we pull them out of the water. What is that symbolic of? It's something is new and born. That's where this idea of being born again comes from. Something new has started. We bring them out. Jesus brings new life and a new start. It is symbolic of teaching you now who you are. You come out of the water. Who am I? Just as circumcision was a sign for Jewish males that they were part of the people of God, baptism is a sign that you have not only been forgiven, freed from the power of sin, but you have been adopted into a family. You've been literally grafted into a new people. That's why we do it publicly as well. Forgiven and adopted. This is what 2 Corinthians 5 says about those things. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you are in Christ, 
The new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Baptism symbolizes all those things. And it symbolizes this, that that new life begins now and will lead on forever. Okay? Even through the doorway of death, it symbolizes resurrection. We were, therefore, buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may will live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united in a resurrection like his. So it symbolizes new life now and resurrection life then. Signs all these things. So here's the thing. Here's the step of application, everybody. Be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, be baptized. Even if it's a bit of a wrestling match for you inside, be baptized because Jesus is Lord, right? Okay, here's the second thing we should do together in the gathered community. We should break bread together. We should have communion together. We should do this. Jesus gathers his disciples right towards the end of his life. And he says, right, he gets bread and wine. And he says, he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Eat this, do it in remembrance of me. Then he takes the wine, he pours it out. And he says, this is my blood poured out for you Do it and drink it in remembrance of me. He says, whenever you come together, do this. Now, there's lots of ways you can talk about communion, but let me give you one angle in, okay? And that's this. The timing of this meal was very specific, okay? Jesus breaks bread and pours the wine out, and they share this meal together on Passover. They are sharing a Passover. This was a Jewish festival, And Passover was a reference back to something that happened centuries before, and you can read about it in Exodus 11. Okay, and that is the story of when the Israelite people are held in captivity as slaves in Egypt. And Moses, God calls Moses to get them out, right? You know, some of of you know these stories. So God sends Moses to Pharaoh, and basically he says God wants to get the Israelites out. Pharaoh refuses and so they go through a sequence of basically plagues that God brings on the Egyptians until Pharaoh says, you can go. The final thing which gets the people out is God says, right, Pharaoh refuses, refuses, refuses. And he says, right, okay, this is what's going to happen. God judges the Egyptians and God judges Pharaoh and says, the firstborn in all of Egypt is going to die at midnight. In other words, God's going to come through and the firstborn is going to die. But God says to Moses and the Israelites, This is what I want you to do. I want you to get a a one-year-old goat or lamb. It needs to be perfect and spotless, and I want you to take it. I want you to sacrifice it. I want you to cook it, and I want you to eat it, and I want you to take the blood, and you are to put it on the door frame of your house so that when midnight comes and I go through and bring judgment on Egypt and the firstborn dies, where I see the sign of the blood, I will pass over and not bring death and judgment to that house. It's a reference back to this, okay? And that's what happens. And the Israelites, there's no death and judgment where the sign of the blood is on the doorposts. And Pharaoh allows the Egyptians to go, the Israelites to go, and they come out, they get out of slavery, they go through the waters, which is a reference for further forward, fast forward to baptism, okay, into a new land. 
And every year since then, the Israelites are to reenact this thing, eat Passover meal to remember what God did in their history, bringing the Israelites out of Egypt into a new land. So Jesus gets his disciples together, breaks bread, pours the wine, shares it out, do this in remembrance of me. And he says, this is my body and this is my blood. What is he saying? He is saying, I am the Passover lamb. It's me. All that happened in history, it was like a foreshadowing of what was going to happen absolutely one day in him. So just as one day God brought the Israelites out of physical slavery, out of a physical nation, through physical into a new physical land, so Jesus is saying, now I am the fulfillment of all of that. I am the Passover lamb. I am the end of all sacrifices. And I am beginning to bring you out of spiritual slavery into being a new person, a part of a new people, into a new, whole new reality of my kingdom. Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of all that. All those pictures and echoes you saw there, I'm the fulfillment. The judgment and penalty and wrath which is yours is no longer yours. I'm the Passover lamb. Through this sacrifice, you who are broken, bound up, held in slavery to sin and addictions and all sorts of unhealthy stuff, now you can be set free, not just from the penalty, but from the power of those things. You can come out into a new place, into a new person. And that is the power of the gospel. And that's why we break bread together. And Paul says you have to do it whenever you come together. Now, one other comment on this, interestingly. We break bread together and we eat the bread and the wine and we drink the wine because one of the things that happens is we taste again the reality of what Jesus did. In other words, you know when, when someone takes you to their house and they want to show you their, their holiday photos? Yeah? Have you ever been there and you've been there for several hours and you'd have been happy looking at it for about three minutes but now it's four hours in and, and it's like, like, this is what happened back then. Breaking bread, and it's not, it's not looking bad at a picture of something that happened long ago. Oh, that was good. That was good. It is experiencing now the reality of living in the good of all that happened then. That's why we come and we taste. In other words, the power of God that we saw in that moment to free us, you can experience now in this moment again. That's why we consume it. Well, it's one of the reasons, because God wants you to experience again his liberating power. Nothing to do with me, nothing to do with the songs we choose, nothing to do with the atmosphere, nothing to do with whether we dim the lights or put the smoke machine on. It's all to do with the fact that he's gracious and he's able. We get to experience it again today. I believe God wants to do that today. Here's the third thing we should do when we come together. The Bible says we should sing. So again and again in the Psalms, some of you are thinking this is great, others of you are like, uh, I'm not going to get you to stand up one by one and sing, it's okay. But again and again in the Psalms, you see this exhortation to sing. Sing about God, to God, what he has done, in response to what he has done, celebration, declaration, adoration, the whole thing. And God says, use music to help you express your affections to God. Now music is a very subjective and controversial thing in church. But it's God's gift to us as the medium by which loads of people can come together and worship together. God says use music. Now why? Because the way he's hardwired us and made us is that love and affection and music go together, don't they? There's entire industries built around the idea. The world knows this. In the music industry and in the film industry, music and emotions go together and that's normal. 
You can study music intellectually, and that's interesting, but ultimately we love music. Why? Because of the way it makes us feel. Music moves us. Now, I remember as a teenager, this is going to sound a bit weird, but some of you are going to go, yes, I can relate to this. If I felt a bit down as a teenager, do you know what I used to put on? I put on music that made me feel even more down. Did anybody else use that? Bizarre, melancholic thing. I don't know. I'm Surely I should put music on and make me feel more up. But I was like, because it moves you. And that's what music does. And sometimes in churches we go, no, we don't want to feel things. What do you mean you don't want to feel things? Now, obviously that could be abused and weird and you have to be careful. And that's why we want the Bible and the experience. We want spirit and word together. But God has called us to sing because music moves us. And that's why worship and singing are absolutely connected together in the gathered community. There's nothing in the Bible, by the way, that says this style of music is better than this style of music. That is nonsense. And when people say that, all they're doing is trying to put scripture to their preference. Musical style should simply relate to the culture we live in in the time we live in. It's going to be different all around the world, and it's going to be different at all different generations, and that's normal and right. But playing and singing helps us express our worship to him. So it helps us express it, and I would say it helps us stir our emotions for him. Sometimes when you don't feel like singing, that's the very reason you should sing. Because it helps generate affections to God. This is true for whether you're really musical, whether you're semi-musical, whether, whether you're unmusical, or whether you're sub-musical. Okay? <laughs> it's true. We should sing. And, note, interestingly, we should sing together. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. It's all corporate. Come, let us sing for God, joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud. Let us come before him. It's all corporate. And it's a command. Why? Because we have a collective story. Well, I've referenced talking about breaking bread and baptism. It's an all reference to a collective story. It's like a redemption story. Yeah, it's personal, but it's not just private. You have been forgiven, if you're a Christian, born again into a body. That's part of our story. So we should sing about it, tell of it, and remember it. So we're going to do that in a minute. We're going to worship together in a minute. We're going to sing, the band's going to lead us, and we're going to see where it goes. And... Well, I say, you might feel God speak to you. Personally for you, you might feel God gives you something prophetic. That's great. You can come and share that. I always think for those of you who have that kind of gift or bring prophetic things which point us towards God earlier in the worship, and if you feel God gives you something which is more of a word of knowledge, that's something we bring later on. Because to start off, we want to take direction. We want to bring attention to him and unveil a picture of who he is first. Okay? But before we get in there, I want to just talk quickly, last two or three minutes, Simply about our motivation to worship as we come. Now, listen very carefully because this could be misheard. But at least I will make you think. I think sometimes when it comes to worship and our reason to worship, we get things the wrong way around a little bit. And our motive, our reasoning for why we come affects how we come. So it's really important that we understand why we come to worship because it affects how we come. And sometimes it affects even if we do come. Sometimes we think of the Christian life as being in two halves. There's the free bit, 
and then there's the bit where we pay. So there's the free bit, which is we all understand, I was a sinner, I was a mess, I couldn't save myself, Jesus dies for me, he forgives me, he breaks into my life, I get born again, it's all free, it's all his grace. And we get that, I think. But then sometimes we cross the line of salvation and we think, now from now on, it's a bit like, this is kind of more like how I live this. This is what I ought to do now. In light of all that, this is how I ought to live. This is about me now beginning to pay God back. This is about me being obedient because of what God's done for me. It's like, and if we take that too far, it becomes that we start to pay God dues, and it's like we start to sacrifice to him. And if we go too far down that line, what we're saying is, I have to do these things in order to please him and pay him back. And what we're saying is, your sacrifice, Jesus, on the cross was never fully sufficient for me, and now I have to do these things to make it sufficient. And if we think that way, even if we're not aware we think that way, we do this to worship, okay? We basically, you imagine there's a table here, which in fact there is a table here, so don't imagine, it's actually there. Okay? And what we do in worship is, we think of worship as something where we have to we have to come to him and we bring him stuff. That's, that's some things we bring. Okay, we just, we bring, we bring. We're coming to worship. We may not want to. It's like we think of worship sometimes as an obligation and it's about, it's an empty table and we literally, we come and we put our things and it's like we are paying our dues to God in worship because I ought to come. It's like an obligation. Now, there's something very noble about that, and it sounds almost right, and there's suddenly some truth in it somewhere. But actually, I think the picture is the wrong way round. Okay? Because, strangely, God doesn't really need my worship. Because he's all-sufficient anyway. He doesn't need me to add anything. He hasn't got an ego which is feeling a bit sad, and I need to come and like, give him some, some strokes and makes God feel better. Why do we come to worship? Why? Let me tell you why. Because I need him. You see, worship is always Godward. It's always towards him. He is always the object. He's always the source. He's always the center. He's always the reason. We have a story which tells us that. We have a collective story. It says, Jesus, it is all about you. But when I come to worship, the beneficiary is me. It's towards him, he's the center, it's all about him, but actually the beneficiary is always me. He's always the giver, I'm always the receiver, I'm always the one who's in need and he's never the one in need. And if you think about the table, what happens is this, I come to the table empty-handed, basically. I haven't got a sacrifice that makes it possible for me to come. And I don't need one because Jesus has already made a sacrifice for me. I come to the table because I need to come to his table. And what I find is when I come to his table, when we come to worship, what I find is the table has already been laid for me. He has laid the table already. And I come and I lift my hands to him and I sing songs to him. And as I do, it's like I start to feed from him again. I start to receive from him again. It's all about him. It's all for him. He is the source and the center, absolutely. But the transaction is I am the one who ultimately receives. Psalm 116 says this. 
Let me just put it up. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on his name. In other words, it's saying this. How do I repay God? This is how I repay God. I come to his table and I receive again. And as I receive, if I eat from his table, if I drink from his table, what's happening, what I'm saying is this. You are the only one who satisfies. You are the only source. You're the only place to drink from. You're the only place to feed from. You're the only reason worth living for. You are the one I want to center my life around. As I receive, I am pointing to him again and bringing glory to him again. John Piper in one of his books says this, how do you bring glory to a mountain stream? You drink it. You drink it. It's all about him, but we come not to make a sacrifice, but we do come to surrender. Do you understand? If you get that, it's completely liberating. Because if you walk into church and you think, I haven't done very well this week, no, you probably haven't. You come to the table again. If you think, oh, I can't come, yeah, you can come because he's made a way for you to come. Because it's not about what you bring to the table, it's about coming to him, not sacrificing to him, but surrendering to him. You see, it's not an obligation, it is an opportunity to come. And that is what makes grace-filled worship totally different. 